0: Uh, Mark chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. We're in this series, I don't know, five, six weeks now. Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. When I was uh, a young, young man, I heard my dad talk about this thing called slippery slopes. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I do now. And uh, there seems to me to be... um, so many slippery, slope, bad decisions that are affecting uh, so many people and the outcomes are more than they ever feared. And uh, I thought about giving you some illustrations, but I don't want to depress you, so I'm just going to skip it, let your mind wander. Um, But I do have a question that's going to make my point, okay? And I need you to listen to this. If Jesus were to come to the world today, 2015, not, not 2,000 years ago in, in Jerusalem, but kind of showed up in Gilbert today, what would we accuse him of? You remember what they said of him, right? You know how, why they killed him? The religious elite at the time didn't like him because he wasn't like them, remember? He wasn't holy enough for them. He didn't eat with the right people or eat the right way. He didn't talk to the right people. He didn't hang around with the right crowd. He said the wrong things. They accused him of blasphemy. This Jesus isn't like us, okay? In their minds, Jesus was way too restrictive, way, sinfully so restrictive. And, and, of course, in that culture, law, man, just rules, do, work, try. And, uh, and they did. And so Jesus didn't match up, so they killed him for this reason. In their minds, he wasn't good enough. He wasn't who he claimed to be. He didn't do the right things. He didn't do what any good, self-respecting Jew would do. And so instead of being good and and being around the good, Jesus went the other way, and he went to the bad. He went to the reckless. He went to the catastrophic, train wreck lives. That's kind of what Jesus did. We don't do that. I think if Jesus came into our world today, I think we would kill him and crucify him for the same reasons in essence. He's not like us, but for a totally different motive. If the Jews hated him because he wasn't good enough, I think we'd kill him because he's too good. That transformed life thing, Jesus, it's too restrictive. I mean, holiness and worship... And submission to the come on. I mean, there's a different version of Christianity today. Get, get with it. It's 2015. We have, we've, we're smarter than that now. We have interpretive skills. We can read through the lines, and we can find a place for our life and our living that we can do whatever we want to do and have the blessings of eternal life. We don't need restriction, and we don't need holiness. I think if Jesus showed up today, we would have a serious problem and think he's way too rigid and way too specific about sin, and we'd go, cast. We're in a different world, Jesus. We're smarter than that now. You might, you might say, I'm exaggerating, but we are living in the world of slippery slopes. Uh, maybe you keep up on this, but uh, I think it was a week and a half ago, um, the Presbyterian Church of USA, PCUSA, just flopped on the same sex marriage issue. I heard just last week of a more evangelical Presbyterian church in one of the largest cities in our country also flopped on it. Now, this is not a discussion about any specific sin, not even the sin of 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 what you might consider the homosexuality issue, but what I do think it is. It's about whether or not Jesus has the right to radically affect sinners. Do you hear what I said? Pick pick whatever poison you want. Pick whatever version of living and and life. We just sang a song about set me free. Here's the thing I thought about when I was standing over there. There's a 1,000 people here who get to decide what they think is free, and they think Jesus is here for that. And that's not the freedom Jesus came for, and yet that's the the lie. That's the slippery slope that's perpetrated in the church. He's here for your version of happiness, and so you adjust the rules. Go ahead. move, Move it around. Does Jesus have the right to affect... The radical nature of what it means to follow him. Can he say to you and me, come after me, be like me, and do like me? Or is he just simply trying to be a benefit, a future blessing to you? That's the challenge of this text. And by the way, let me me just remind you. Jesus is the one who gets to decide what is sin and what is not. He's the one that, with the authority to, to call men to leave their version of life and their way of living and their coping to, to trust and follow him. And, and he wasn't hiding that intention. Over and over again, this is, this is how the text tells us of the reasons why Jesus came. Luke uh, chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save, not the lost. Our culture would rewrite that. He came to seek and adjust. Matthew 28: "The Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom a payment for many." John 18, being questioned by Pilate, questioning whether he's a king, Jesus said, "You say that I'm a king, but for this purpose I was born. For this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. God's truth. Jesus came in the world to be light. He said in Matthew or in John chapter 12, "I've come into the world as light, so that whoever may, believes in me will not remain in the darkness." John 10:10, 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and life more abundantly. Life. So we've got things like light for darkness and life for death, truth versus lies. That's kind of Jesus' intention. He wasn't hiding why He came. All of these passages um, kind of share the theme with our story today in, in this text. And so let me, before we get started, tell you where we're going. The end conclusion of this whole thing. If you get nothing else, get this statement. And I'm going to put it in a negative fashion. You might be accusing me of being cynical. I'm not cynical. I'm just going to put it in the negative because I think it'll stick better. Jesus didn't come for good people. Just write it down and and we'll get to application to your life in in a little bit. So he didn't come for the good. So we pick up a day in life of Jesus in in Mark chapter 2. Starting at verse 13, one of the things that I always am uh, concerned about and maybe aware of is that whenever we come to passages like this, we already know, we've already read it, we've heard that story, it's engraved in our mind, and so um, you might not lean into the story, but I want you to try to lean into the story to hear maybe in a new way what God might be saying. So let's read it together, starting in verse 13 to verse 17, the very familiar story of Jesus calling Levi or Matthew. He says this, and and when he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them and as he passed by he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and said to him follow me and he rose and, and followed him and as he reclined at the table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, I'm going to break this thing down by talking about the characters in the story, how they responded and why they did so. Okay, just real simple. Now, like every narrative in the Gospels, the hero of every story is Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of everything. He is the Lord of all. He is the Savior come for sin. He is trying to heal us from our greatest disease, which is our sin and rebellion against God. So he's obviously in this. So let's just assume that, but talk about two particular groups of people that Jesus is dealing with here. One is Matthew, and I'm going I'm to bucket Matthew or Levi in with his friends, and they're called by the Pharisees, let's just use it, sinners, sinners. Got that group? These are sinners. We'll describe them in just a little bit. And then we have the the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, the the smartest, the sharpest, the best. We'll just call them the good. Sarcastically, we're just going to put them in that category for a little while and and get to the punchline. So how we're going to break this down is look at these people, who they are, what they did, and why they responded the way they did. Here's the first thing, who they are. Verse 13 says... um, The crowd was coming and he was teaching. There's a present kind of verbiage to this thing, which just implies that they were constantly coming and he was constantly teaching, which is exactly what he said he came to do in chapter one, verse 38. I came here to preach. And so he is preaching and the crowds are overwhelming him. He's at the height of his popularity and everybody wants to hear these new words, these revelatory words they have never heard before. And by the way, he's healing everybody. So crowds are coming and he's constantly teaching them, okay? And Jesus is passing by the sea, and he sees a tax collector named Levi. We know as Matthew, who's sitting in his booth doing his job. And all we know is that Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. The text says he did. He got up and rose and and, and followed him. So let me introduce you to Matthew. Who is this guy? And and by the way, just just to add to our collection of understandings in the first two chapters of this, uh, Jesus keeps getting, adding to his reputation of hanging around with the wrong crowd because so far we've seen him with, be with a demon-possessed. We've seen him with paralytics and sick people and, and lepers and now we add a tax gatherer to, to his uh, quotient. But you might look at that and go, "Isn't that a noble profession working for the government like that, IRS, that's a good thing. Good job. Um, well, that's not how they felt about it. This was not a, a, a noble profession. In fact, get this, the title tax gatherer was used interchangeably with the word robber. Okay, so they would would say, he's tax collecting me. Okay, kind of like that. Used interchangeably. That's how they saw them as crooks and thieves, okay? Let me tell you how they got this job and kind of the structure of the tax environment so you know why he's such a bad guy, okay? Rome had a requirement for regions, for income. And they didn't collect the taxes themselves. They auctioned it off. They farmed it out to subcontractors to collect the money. So they would go to publicans and say, how much will you give me for that region over there? And a publican would say, I'll give you X. And if he won the auction, then he would be responsible to get enough income that Rome required for that area. And by the way, Rome did not care how he did it or how much he took. As long as he got the sum that they asked for. Tracking so far. The publican would then, he would go after agents, five to 20 men, who would then kind of subcontract down to smaller sections to manage collections of the amount that was required for the government. And by the way, nobody cared how much above the amount they took. Are you tracking so far. These agents then would hire tax collectors who would sit in a very specific location and collect. Now, let me tell you about the specificness of tax collection. They would hire neighbors and friends and family members to do the job. They hired men who you grew up with, who you knew, who knew you. These are people who understood what you did for a living, how much you made, where your your treasure was hidden, all the little secrets, you know, the things that make the IRS so scary is knowing everything. And so these guys knew everything, and they knew what to tax. And these are the guys you went to high school with and went to prom with. And these are the ones you dreamed about. These are, these, these are your best friends who grew up right there, right there, just like you. And suddenly now they've decided to, to swap sides and extort money from you. And the way it worked was they could collect, they had to collect what the government decided. But anything above and beyond what the government requested was theirs to profit on. And so some of these guys lived way high on the hawk. like huge amount of wealth, lavish living, and every time they collected a tax, you, family or friend, would know he's getting rich off of your back, unfairly. Now, you can just imagine the kind of cheating and extortion and evil going on in that environment, right? And if you see this scenario, you can also see how hated somebody like this would be. I can't believe you'd stab me in the back like that. I cannot believe you'd treat me this way used to be my friend. Now taking my money. So the the result, the consequence for being this guy was that these these men were now excommunicated from the synagogue, i.e. they were excluded from worship. They were not considered uh, righteous enough to participate with God. So they were outside that faith community. They were pronounced unclean. They were considered such liars and despicable men. They weren't even fit to be part of a court decision. They couldn't be a witness. They couldn't be on a jury. They couldn't do anything because they were just seen as liars and thieves. Not trustworthy. They could not give money, charitable money, because nobody would take it. Their money was considered unclean and evil, okay? Everything they touched was unclean. It would be the equivalent of if, uh, if our law and enf- law enforcement would have to collect fines for breaking like street laws. And you knew they also had to make their living off of the fine. And so they would charge you 200 for running a red light and another 400 for themselves. Wink, wink. Well, they'd be hated too. And that's kind of the scenario that's going on here. Now I want you to see who Matthew represents, who he's hanging out with. Verse 15 tells us about his friends. And as they reclined at a table, now here's what we don't know. We don't know how much time exists between Jesus' call of Matthew and this party. It could have been immediately, or it could have been days, it could have been weeks. It doesn't really matter. But here they are reclining at the, at the table at Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So look at how he describes them. Plural, many tax collectors... Plural, many sinners. You you can just write in, if you want to, uh, notoriously evil people. That's who's at this party. Everybody knows that these are the pukes. These are the people you stay away from, okay? They're notoriously evil. Some of them, um, some of these sinners aren't the people who occasionally transgressed against God. They were known for their criminality. They were known for um, violence and prostitution and murder. These were bad people who had no place to go. They were unclean, and they were not accepted either, and so they were just a part of whoever was left for Matthew to know because he was excluded from everybody else, and these are his friends, okay? There's another side to who's there, and these are the people called sinners who aren't necessarily criminal in their behavior. They're just regular people who have no no time and no room for the rules of God. They don't live based on any righteous, religious, Jewish standard. They're just kind of self governing, and so they're excluded for the fact that they don't toe the line. Get it? So we have that group of people in this dinner meeting with Jesus. And brewing in the background is this other group, the religious, the Pharisees, and the, and the scribes, the religious leaders. Now, you, you're probably already familiar with this, but let me just say it so we get it all together. These are what I would call the professional holy people. They make it their profession to obey rules. In fact, in their thinking, I do these things, I climb a virtual ladder, you know, to, to God. I am now acceptable based on my standard of behavior for God to, to accept me. I asked Neil this week about how many laws, like specific laws, were under under their charge to have to obey, some 614 or so laws that they worked on, worked on. In their mind, these Pharisees, these scribes, Uh, had no perceived needs because they were doing everything. They had worked on their life and their behavior so much so they would see that grouping as, oh my gosh, that's disgusting and wrong. We wouldn't do that. Now let's look at how these two groups responded, okay? Verse 14, it says here that Jesus calls to Levi or Matthew, son of Alphaeus, and says, follow me. What's he do? Follows. I mean, this is, kind of, this is kind of Mark's way of writing. He always writes in the immediate. And, and there's the implication here that it's exactly what Matthew did. He heard the call to follow. He got up and he left. He went right away and, and followed Jesus. Look at how the uh, tax collectors and sinners, these many, described in verse 15. Look how they responded. It says here, many tax collectors and sinners were clining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who what? followed him followed. I suppose we need to define that word because a lot of people have taken that word hostage and decided what it means to follow Jesus and made it comfortable and easy, but let's use what I think the text says about following. The word follow is a load-bearing term that describes the proper response of faith. It It involves risk and it involves cost. Okay? You understand? This is not easy. This was never intended to be a just an addition to your life, like just add this like policy of insurance so that you go to heaven someday, make no adjustments to your life. This was a decision, like a conscious decision to do something different, okay? It's something you do, not just believe or think. And let me compare and contrast it to our culture. So if those people who are right take surveys of our country, there are still some like high 70% of people who use Christian to define their system of belief. But they do nothing about following Jesus. They don't even care. But they don't know what else. They, they, my father was or my brother was or my ancestors were. Or it's my, it's my last, I guess, version of things I used to think. But I guess we'll use Christian because I don't want to be anything else. And, and that's, that's clearly not what it means to follow Jesus, okay? True following is perfectly seen in Matthew's response to the call to follow. If Mark tells us that he immediately rose and went after Jesus, Luke tells us um, he left everything to do it. This is not implying that there at the little tax collector table that he left those things to follow Jesus. Luke is saying that he calculated the cost and the risk of leaving his profession and his version of life and living and happiness to follow after Jesus' call. And this, by the way, is not an extreme definition of what it means to follow Jesus. It is the definition of what it means to follow Jesus. See, getting a little bit more crowded in here? A little uncomfortable? Okay, well, hang in there because that's what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to deal with your heart and your tendencies to wander. So Jesus says to to Matthew, follow. Luke says he left everything, everything to follow. He left a job. He couldn't go back. It's not like he had a bad day and called his boss back up and said, hey, man, I, I wasn't thinking clearly. Can I? tax again. That wasn't an option. He left his money. He, he left his um, power and control. Clearly, if you're in a position like that and you got Rome support, you can pretty much, you know, brutalize everybody. My guess is in a few minutes, that news spread like wildfire and everybody in that town knew that Matthew, that guy, that traitor, my old friend who's now stealing money from me, he's left it. You can't go back. It's all It's all new. In that one small, specific moment, everything that had controlled Matthew's life had no meaning to him anymore. Like legitimately, it doesn't matter. Now you should be reflecting on your own life. We probably all have things like that. But so that's Matthew's response to follow. Verse 15 tells us that the many, the notoriously evil people, followed Jesus as well. So you, you can just read into that. They took the risk. They counted the cost. They left what their life was to follow after Christ. And here's why. It's going to seem too simple. It's almost like it isn't worth mentioning, but I think it's the most profound thing in this story. Here's why they left everything. They wanted Jesus. Doesn't that sink in? He didn't offer him anything else. He said, follow me. In their calculation of what do I do and what's this all about, he just simply says, Me. Come after me. Now, we've said this so much, it might be falling on deaf ears, but he is the prize. He is the point of our salvation. He is the joy of man's heart and desire. Everything you want is wrapped up in knowing Jesus, and when he says, follow me, he's not kidding. He's not suggesting add a little version of happiness and joy and a future tomorrow to your your currently held beliefs and your passions. He's saying, replace them all. Change it all. Follow me. Leave everything and come come after me. Now, I want you to keep that thought in your mind because we're going to come back to that at the end and make a a point. So we've seen how the sinners respond. Now look at how the religious, the Pharisees respond. Verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to disciples, why does he do it? Why does he eat with those losers? Okay? Paraphrase. Because you don't associate with sinners. Ever. Ever. Every self-respecting Jew would not do that. You don't go there. Everyone knows who they are. They're bad people. This is what they do. This is what they're known for. Stay away. Don't be contaminated by them. Jesus should know better. It's kind of seen in the picture of that parable Jesus says about the tax gatherer and the the Pharisee when they're praying, remember? The tax gatherer is beating his chest, begging for mercy because he recognizes his need and the Pharisee is is telling God that he should be proud of him for being on his team. Thank you that I'm not like this guy, this puke. I'm different, I'm special, and you should notice that. So, Jesus, um, being with this group of people was bad. If it was bad, you just hang with them. Eating was worse, because eating said so much more. Eating said something like um, acceptance and fellowship. It means you're okay. We're okay with each other. And they had no file for that. They're unclean, and who they touch is unclean. You can't be friends with them. And so the Pharisees' judgment, like we started in the beginning of this, this little sermon, was um, you don't do what we do. You're nothing like we are. Right in the middle of that judgment, Jesus hears it, verse 17, and he says what could possibly be one of the most common sense observations of the moment um, But is a very profound and powerful statement that describes everybody in the story. It's like it lays open bare everybody and just tells the truth about the players in this narrative. Here's what he says, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Is that not common sense? Okay, I think it is too. But those who are sick, that's who needs one. I came not to call the righteous, but but sinners. And here's what he does. In one little statement, he says volumes about him, himself, and his intentions. Jesus makes it clear why he was there. I'm here to care, I'm here to serve. They're sick. They got nothing else, and so I'm coming for them to do good to people who need it. It's it's exactly what we read already in Matthew 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, these many, the sick and the notoriously evil people. And by the way, Jesus painted in this one particular sentence a completely, totally, radically different version of what the Messiah was and what these guys were expecting. We think he's supposed to be a conquering hero. He's coming small and broken and serving. Totally blew their mind. They had no place to put it. But Jesus, in one sentence, describes his intentions and why he was here. That statement it also says something that should have been obvious to everybody, specifically to the Pharisees. Can't you see they're in need? Can't you see they're sick? Can't you see they should get care? To go to the needy is, should be obvious, right? You're the ones, religious elite, you're the ones who claim to have the answers. You're the ones who say you've been to God. You're the ones who say you know how to get there. If anybody should care about the condition of the notoriously evil people, you who think you have it should be giving it. But you don't even care. I heard someone describe the illustration this way. I thought it was pretty good. Um, It would be like a surgeon Who goes into the scrub room? Not that I've ever been there. I watch a lot of TV, and they scrub, okay? And they scrub, and they get all cleaned up, and they walk out of the clean room into the operating theater or whatever, and just turn right back around and start washing again, never to perform anything on on the patient because they're not concerned about the patient; they're concerned about being clean. Stupid, right? Well, that's a Pharisee. That's the religious elite. Got to stay clean. Can't help the sick people. Hope you're okay, bro. That's kind of how it went down. (laughs) And in one little statement, he indicts these religious leaders. He calls them out for a hard heart. You don't even care. You don't see it, and it doesn't matter to you. End of verse 17, the last sentence I told you is is kind of the point of this this text. And so let me make it again. Again, my paraphrase is Jesus, Jesus didn't come for the good, but... It's where Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love how some texts and some narratives apply themselves, you know. Part of a preacher's job is to figure out how to make it fit in your world. Well, this one should fit. You should be able to write your own list of things and how God and his spirit are telling you to respond to it. But let me help, okay? Let me just assume that we're on the same page. Here's one I think jumps out of the text for us. True followers of Jesus aren't to be isolated or insulated from the sick and from the sinful. Isolated, pulled away, insulated, I don't care. You get the difference. True followers, people who say Jesus is our Lord, who've been covered by the righteous robes of Jesus, should never keep their distance or not care about those who are sinful or sick or hurting, right? And I think this is a judgment... From a long ways away. But I think the church is either unintentionally or, as sad as it might be to say, intentionally um, building a Christian world that has no room for the sick and hurting. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus all the time. Got my Christian friends, got my Christian Bible study. Got, I do business with Christians and I go to Christian concerts and. I have Christian stuff everywhere. I, and, and I'm not suggesting to you that's wrong. What I'm telling you is it doesn't provide the room. You can do all the Christian. You should. There should be fellowship. There should be the one another. There should be everything that God intended the church to be to each other. But if you fill up your dance card and there's nothing left for the sinful and the hurting, you're not following your master. Amen. There's nothing left. So I think it's Interesting. Remember when you were saved? I, I can only assume that some of us have stories like Matthew. Maybe you weren't tax gatherers, but you're a train wreck too. Right, you're just praying that God gives you like a lapse of memory so you can't remember all the things you did and the people you hurt. But remember when the lights came on and the first thing you do, did was go tell the friends that you had and what were the friends like? Train wrecks, because that's what train wrecks do. They hang around other train wrecks. That's how it happens. And and there's something that happens to us, and I, I sort of have an understanding of it, but I'm pushing against it. When we come to our senses about faith, we should never lose the context with those who need a surgeon. We gotta keep it. That takes an intentionality on our part. We follow him, so we've gotta do ministry like him. Here's the second thing I think sticks out to me. Never doubt God's power to save someone. My guess is if we were in uh, that day 2,000 years ago and walked into that dinner party, we'd have looked around and went, holy cow, never saw that guy in here. He's following Jesus? Never saw that coming. No way he, he believes, right? And some of us have been praying for our kids for years and years and years and for friends, family members, people we heard about, and they ended up on a prayer list somewhere, and we've prayed, but they've got train wreck stories too, and we just kind of got to the place of our prayer time and going, well, it hasn't happened yet, so I'm just going to quit, and we hide under the sovereignty of God, and we stop praying for those people, and, and I would just say to you, don't give up. God saves the notoriously evil people just like us. Amen. Amen. One last thing. This is going to take some work on my part, I think, to make it clear. And, and hopefully it, it's what was burning in me when I studied this. And uh, it is our response to that last sentence. Let this last sentence humble you. Let it humble us. Let me say it better that way. When we read this or hear me say Jesus didn't come for the good, that he didn't come for the righteous, he came for the, the sinner and the sickest, everyone in here would probably go, yeah. I've never considered myself someone who by my life and my behavior and my religiosity to get myself to God's favor. I've never thought that. I don't have that, that twisted pharisaical position in my life. I believe grace. I believe that. And, and so we think uh, we think because I don't have a wrong view of how someone can work or not work their way to Jesus, then I'm good to go. I think we need to look a little bit deeper into this sentence and how it applies to 2015 in our life, Okay. In that day, clearly this phrase was confronting the self-righteous, wasn't it? It was confronting the the Pharisees and the scribes who thought by their 614 obediences to laws and their ability to stay away from the unclean and and be like super holy, that somehow God would notice them and offer them some kind of favor because of their behavior. In fact, we could say these self-righteous were people that say, I don't have a problem because I fixed my problem. Yeah, I, I'm not denying that people are sinful, but I've done the law. I've done the work. I've fixed it. I don't have the problem. It's not there anymore because I've made it go away by, by effort. I'm not like others. Now, maybe there are a few of those people still hanging around. I haven't met, met very many, like, true Pharisees who think their life merits God's salvation. M- maybe they are, and so if, if you're here, God bless you. This is your passage, Okay. But if that passage confronts the self-righteous, I think we need to apply this to the self-deceptive person in our culture. And hopefully I can make this clear. We live in a world now where this doesn't represent God's final word on my life and living. It just doesn't. We like the portions where it says, I'll have salvation and he'll forgive me. But where he says, follow me and obey me, uh, especially when it gets into some kind of personally held, like purity, I gotta be pure. Mm. We don't do that in 2015. Jesus, I don't know if you know this, things are a little bit more comfortable now. And you're gonna tell me what it means to live life and and what it is for a man and a woman, you're gonna tell me that, you're gonna talk to me about business and money, you're gonna talk about all that stuff. Well, you haven't clearly been in Gilbert in 2015 because things have changed. We're smarter now and we can interpret this Bible so it fits with us better and just give me salvation and let's get on with it. So we live in a world where we say Jesus has no right to tell me what life means and Jesus has no right to tell me how I should live and what holiness looks like. In essence, Jesus has no right to say follow me anymore. So we kind of rewrite it to say this is what it means to follow him now. And instead of using this idea of self-righteousness and working my way out of my problem and say I have no problem anymore because I fixed it by my behavior, we're self-deceived and we say there is no problem because those don't apply anymore. Those things aren't that specific. Jesus doesn't care about sin. And, And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus said, follow me. Who do you think gets to decide the terms? I'm not trying to crowd you. And and to be fair, every time a sinner talks to another sinner, I don't care if it's a preacher or not, there should be a sense of kind of humble crippledness in it. I have issues in my own life that I don't either perceive or I think I have a right to. But let's just be honest about our condition, every one of us. When we say, Jesus, not there, not my marriage, that guy's a jerk. I should be able to get out. Not my business, because I've got to make profit. The tax guy's coming after me. Not that. Not my lifestyle, because you sang about freedom, and I get to decide what's freedom, right? It's Jesus plus, and I can do that. I can add all that to my life and my living. This passage should humble us. Following Jesus is way more than making him your savior. It's following his lead. He didn't offer another version. Do you understand if if Jesus came into our world today, he would say the same thing. What would our excuse be? He would say, Bob, follow after me. And you would say what? You're too restrictive, Jesus. I think that's worth a, a, a challenge. It's worth a prayer, right? So let's do it. Let's pray right now. God, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for... How narratives like this confront our tendencies, our self-righteous tendencies for ser- certain but our self-deceived ones. That we want to rewrite what it means to follow you and be a Christian. God, I just pray in your loving, gracious way that you would woo us to our senses. And bring what I would call that tender, heavy weight of conviction for us to see life from your vantage point. And regardless of how we feel, live as if you're Lord of all.